Hey, Renato, did we learn anything new from the January 6th committee report? Uh, it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, uh, in part because I was quarantining in Europe, I ended up spending a bunch of time over the holidays, uh, you know, on TV appearances talking about January 6th, uh, much more than I expected. And it was just back to back to back coverage, breaking down every chapter, every line. Uh, It's not clear to me, you know, we talked before the holidays uh, about, you know, I think neither of us were thinking this report was going to change things all that much. It, It really, it's not clear to me that anything really did change for us. Yeah. I mean, I think what the January 6th committee report shows, I mean, it's 845 pages long. They've been releasing all of these transcripts is just the breadth and depth of the investigation they undertook. And I think we have to really appreciate the value that that adds, because whatever comes out of the Department of Justice, as we discussed before, is going to be, you know, potentially a sliver of that, uh, whatever crosses the threshold of criminal activity. Um, But it won't necessarily tell the whole story. And I think that that's what this report uh, does and and all of the transcripts. Um, much of the stuff we and we were just discussing before we came on, you know, that was making headlines. I felt like I had heard before, like this stuff about Mark Meadows burning documents. I can't remember if it had just been reported and now it's new because it's officially in the report. But a lot of it uh, did seem like things that we had known, uh, but maybe because it had been coming out piecemeal, it wasn't as powerful as it is now coming out altogether with everything else. Yeah, I do think that there is an element uh, to which, um, you know, there was a power to everything being together and having the weight of all this material. I do think they did a nice job of weaving together a narrative. But I have to say, I don't really think that there was a lot that they left on the table that wasn't already in the televised uh, proceedings. I mean, there were certainly details you know, interesting text messages between Tony Ornato and Cassidy Hutchinson, for example, that tended to corroborate her account. I don't know why they didn't bring that out during the hearing. I think that they probably just, you know, had so much material. It was hard to, for them to get it all marshaled. I mean, it was clear. To, I mean, it, it, it's clear to me that they were struggling to just get everything out the door because otherwise you wouldn't want to dump this like right, before, right during the holidays. Like you would have been far better off doing that a month earlier. Uh, but I think they just were, you know, trying their best to get through everything and get it done. Um, but I have to say, you know, there was a lot, there are some people who after all of the days and days and days of coverage of the January 6th report are now saying, you know, if Garland does not charge, you know, whatever, or, you know, he really should be Jack Smith charged whatever out of January 6th, like there's a dereliction of duty and all of this sort of over the top stuff. 
I have to say nothing about what was in the January 6th report changes my view of the challenges of bringing charges there. I mean, does that anything there change your view on that? No, I mean, the law is the law. Um, I, I think they have, they have a lot of transcripts to go through. I don't know how long DOJ has had many of these transcripts or if they're getting them just now. I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, you know, I'll say a few things. I think... I do think seeing it all together, the committee did make a pretty good case. They, they did have the through line of Trump specifically. That's who they were focused on, right? And this idea that this was premeditated. It was very carefully kind of plotted and coordinated, at least in terms of the interference in the electoral vote count, Um that violence was anticipated. Um, I don't know that there's the direct connection still between Trump and that, but that that people like Hope Hicks anticipated, you know, they, they kind of were worried about this before um, January 6th happened. And I think that that sort of premeditation and understanding will be helpful for the Justice Department in establishing Trump's state of mind. Um you know, whether it will still whether it will be enough for them to bring charges, I think remains to be seen. But I think that there was kind of put all together a compelling case there. Um, there was also something apart from Trump, I think that was new in or not new, but I guess it was new. This idea of uh, Cassidy Hutchinson's lawyer essentially more or less counseling sure. her to lie, which is uh, problematic. I think that was an interesting thread um, that might be worth uh, talking about. Yeah, I, I, you, you may, you know, gosh, I think I had some private conversations where I was, I, I was very um, ag- aggressively blunt with some other commentators who were making big proclamations about that. I mean, I, I so Cassidy, Cassidy Hutchinson's lawyer essentially told her like. Just so you don't recall, he was really pushing her to say that, even if she did recall. There was some public commentary and tweets by lawyers saying, "Oh my God, he's you know essentially he's he should be charged for this. He's either he's going to lose his law license, and you know the, they should be pursuing charges." And I will just tell you um, that 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 maybe sounds good in a tweet, but it runs very counter to my experience. And, and I, I I think what I said privately to one of those people was that I would bet my life savings that he's not charged with anything. And that's just because I've seen so much of that. I mean, unfortunately, um, um, you know, first of all, the situation that that she was in, having a lawyer provided to her, paid by somebody else who is looking for other people's interests in addition to her own, is really a sad feature of a system we have where um, it is okay for viewed as as ethical and not problematic for third parties to pay for legal fees. It happens constantly <laughs> all the time. And um, I I have had many cases where I represent defendants uh, who end up um, bringing me in at some point because they're concerned that their lawyer, they're like Cassidy Hutchison, they were concerned that their lawyer wasn't fully looking out for their interests. It's just a very common occurrence. And this issue of lawyers con- convincing, trying to convince their witnesses to say they don't recall. Is it problematic? Yes. Um, could you say that that's potentially a crime that's charged? Sure. But that this is, I think, part of the issue with like a lot of legal analysis. Like 
is it like on a law school exam? Could you like say like, is this, uh, is this potentially a crime? Like, yeah, but in the real world, how do you prove what her lawyer was was telling her beyond a reason. Well, what is the crime She's they, gonna, they claim? Witness tampering or supporting perjury? Or? That, that, that he was corruptly, yeah, corruptly trying to influence her testimony. And this is some sort of crime you should be investigated for. Well, it's a he said, she said. He's going to say she misunderstood his advice. And he's going to say, all I was telling her to do is if she does not specifically recall the conversation to say she doesn't recall and that, by the way, some some of our listeners may be like, hey, that's not proper. Like if she recalls something, she should volunteer what she has. But a lot of lawyers will will, you know, provide that counsel to a witness like, hey, unless you're absolutely certain, just say you don't recall because, you know, you don't want to misremember something and get yourself in trouble. So he's going to say that's what he was saying. She's going to say something different. It's going to be chalked up as a misunderstanding. You're not going to be able to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. That's just the reality of this in the real world because our standard of proof is so high in a criminal case. Yeah. And I, I think this just goes to the bigger picture of everyone just being so trigger happy about um, wanting to find criminal charges. Things do not have to be a crime to be wrong. In other words, we can still condemn, you know, certain types of behavior and it doesn't have to get to, will he be charged with a crime? And there are other forms of accountability. And one of the things that I've written about recently is that, you know, that we fail to appreciate the different mechanisms of accountability that we have outside of the criminal justice system and that we should be paying attention to it. So for example, speaking of lawyers, um, the professional, <laughs> you know, the disciplinary process for, for lawyers that right now people like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani are undergoing disciplinary proceedings. Um, I don't know if this would rise to that. It, it probably wouldn't. It's a high bar. But my point is, you know, I'm just, I'm kind of sick of like, will he be charged with a crime? It's, right. it's, it gets so I, old because it's sort of like, you know, like it's complicated. <laughs> you know, I mean, like there's a lot of different factors. But what happens is that when we make that the bar, what we're implicitly suggesting is that if it doesn't meet that bar, that it's OK. And there is, by the way, a bar for moral and ethical, you know, and permissible conduct that is below the, the threshold of criminal conduct. And we should be holding people to that standard and be talking about those types of norms and expectations. And we don't. And unfortunately, I think it's a development that's happened since Trump came to office that all we care about is criminal prosecution. It's super annoying to me, to be honest. It's very annoying to me. I mean, the other thing that's annoying to me is this idea that well, first of all, like every crime has is immediately punished and has to be punished. And if it's not like that's somehow some problem with our system, like there's crimes all the time that don't get punished. Like every time some someone swipes a pack of gum from your local 7-Eleven, is there a prosecute criminal prosecution of that? Like, I, I mean, probably not. OK, so, I mean, yes, that's the real world in which we live in. I will say another thing that's super annoying to me is that somehow if I point the the reality of the situation out that I'm defending this like like somehow I'm defending her lawyer uh, coaching witnesses to you know lie or mislead the, the people no I'm not doing that I'm just being truthful to the public by not like putting something out there that's going to get thirty thousand retweets or likes but is actually not 
it all true. Uh, I, I just one of the things that's been very frustrating to me over the years, and I've been kind of you know doing a lot of public co- legal commentary now for you and I have right. I remember from what early 2017. It's been several years now. Is just like this idea that like well, you know, there's this massive um, amplification of opinions that are silly uh, about everything turning into criminal prosecution, and then if you call that into question or say that's not actually true, you're somehow defending the wrongdoers, or you're on their side, or you're an apologist. And I'm none of those things. I'm just trying to be very realistic with our, in this case, our listeners, or in the case of tweet, you know, tweets, whoever's reading them. I think the big takeaway is that whatever liability, professional, criminal, or whatever this lawyer has, clearly the takeaway was that Cassidy Hutchinson did not feel that she was free to be completely forthcoming under that person's counsel and eventually ended up changing lawyers and being much more forthcoming. And I think we need to be grateful that you know, we do have her testimony because it illuminated a lot of pieces that otherwise this cone of silence would have kept in the shadows. Um, that's, I think, really the main point of that, of her testimony. I agree. And I think, you know, kudos to her and to, I think it's Alyssa Farah Griffin is her name, who helped her get a new a new attorney who, who represented her, by the way, pro bono. So kudos to all of those people uh, for creating a situation in which she could come forward and give truthful testimony. You know, one thing I will say, Asha, is a takeaway that I did want to talk about from all of this is, you know, one thing that has really the case for this January 6th investigation, unlike, let's say, the Mar-a-Lago case and some of the other criminal investigations that DOJ has, is that this is a case in which now the DOJ is coming in second. And they are they are essentially taking over an investigation that in many ways has already been begun by, the, by Congress. And I think it has some implications. Um, when I was a federal prosecutor, I used to investigate a lot of cases. They call it in parallel. Uh, with the SEC or the CFTC, agencies that investigate securities and commodities, um, uh, you know, fraud and other types of related crimes in the financial markets. And, you know, it, it definitely changes things when the SEC has already interviewed everyone under oath and you have transcripts of what they are, they're going to say. And it helps in certain respects because sometimes, you know, they lock everyone in. And it's sometimes great because I literally had trials where, you know, these fancy New York lawyers just sitting there as I was playing transcripts of their clients uh, testifying under oath, and there's nothing they could do about it. Their clients said you have to eat that testimony. On the other hand, though, it definitely, when when you have really competent counsel in the SEC or SEFTC investigation, it creates a situation where everyone is coached to have certain just-so stories and they don't remember. And it really it gives them an opportunity to kind of obfuscate. Whereas if I sent FBI agents in from the beginning to like surprise people at their homes and they you know gave quick statements without having lawyers present, uh, they might give more truthful answers or more candid answers or they might make a mistake in what they say. Um, and you know you can often generate more criminal prosecutions that way. So I do think it, it has benefits in and and uh, and drawbacks. Yeah. Um, The last takeaway I would say about the January 6th committee report is because it was focused on Trump, they really didn't highlight, I think, the intelligence failures and the law enforcement failures. In fact, they were quite 
laudatory, it seemed like, of, mm -hmm. of the um, law enforcement, uh, even saying, you know, while there was stuff out there, you know, basically these agencies did the best they could. Um, and I've been a little bit more uh, critical of how the FBI in particular responded to this. I wrote a piece for Just Security about that. And I get that it was probably beyond the scope of the committee's, um, not that beyond their purview, but just in terms of what they had the capacity to do in the time frame they had to do it. But it was it was a little disappointing, I think, to see them kind of let the agencies off the hook, as opposed to saying something like this warrants further review. You know, that's that's a really smart comment. Uh, I agree with that. Um, you know, I think that from my perspective, I think it was a political decision that was made. In other words, this wasn't the 9-11 commission, you know, some nonpartisan, bipartisan group that's brought in to effectively be a history making exercise where we like examine what happened. This is this is a the, yeah. it was a um, a political committee, an operation. And they they, I think, smartly decided that. The story is much more compelling if you have a single straightforward story. And that's 100% right. I mean, uh, as a trial lawyer, one of the mistakes people make is they try to put on everything and tell everything and say everything. Just ha having a straightforward single singular story is always best. So I think focusing on Trump made sense for what they were trying mm -hmm. to do. But yeah, I think, you know, if you were a historian looking at this, you'd be like, hey, we really need to explore this. Or like, what about exploring all the stuff that happened with the military? I mean, some of the most interesting stuff that came out of the January 6th report was like, there's like there was a military commander who's like I'm just sending in troops like screw this I have I'm not I don't know if I have a clear order but like we need to act like there's people attacking the U.S. Capitol and a a, a lawyer in the in the military is like no you can't do that based on some standing order yada 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 and so he ended up deciding not to do it even though his initial in implication was to send in troops to protect the Capitol I mean I think that's just really fascinating and it seems to me like we might want to figure out. What what yeah. our military can and should do when our institutions are under attack? Uh, I think those are big, <laughs> weighty questions, but they're not really explored by the committee at all. All right, Asha. So let's talk about the uh, craziness going on in the House. We're recording this on the 4th on Wednesday. So um, maybe by now you're going to have um, Speaker Donald Trump or Speaker Kevin McCarthy or Speaker Jim Jordan or God knows who. Um, but for right now, we're in the midst of the craziness that's going on there. And, and I will say, Ash, I think it just reveals some of the problems uh, that there are with the current uh, Republican Party. You know, I while I was quarantining and I was, you know, on Twitter, there was some guy talking about the philosophies of the Republican Party, the governing philosophy of the Republican Party. One of my, well, I rare, I usually stick to legal topics when I tweet, but I replied to him like, what is the governing philosophy of the Republican Party that you claim there is? I, I can't figure out what it is. I just, it seems to me like a totally diffuse group of people who are basically like trying to own the libs and get attention for themselves. And so I think that's part of the problem here. It's not like they're united behind some sort of common agenda and they're like so excited about coming together to do tax cuts. Like I, they just seem like they're all out for themselves and, you know, pointing fingers at each other and squabbling like junior high school students. Yeah, there's a great book called Burning Down the House by Princeton professor Julian Zelitzer, and it is about Newt Gingrich. And I think if you go back, the 
the dysfunction and polarization in Congress is really like has its roots in 1995 when uh, Newt Gingrich takes over, right? And um, I would say the philosophy is sort of the Cobra Kai philosophy, right? Strike first, strike hard, no mercy, um, no compromise. And I think that strain has just continued and intensified to the point where now it's you know, internal. It's eating itself alive, right? Um, as you said, I think that these um, extremists in the Republican Party relish kind of breaking the system, right? These are the same people who wanted to paralyze the peaceful transition of power um, and upend it. So to me, it's not shocking that they are willing to do, you know, I, I don't see them compromising or caving in this situation. In fact, I think, um, so just a recap for people who didn't watch it, it was really fascinating. I've never watched one of these votes before, maybe because they were always unremarkable. And, I, you know, I'm sure they were on C-SPAN, but I didn't watch it. But I was just glued to the television yesterday because they kept doing these votes and um, McCarthy kept losing. And I think by the third vote, he had even lost votes from you know his own party um and it was sort of like i don't know how many times you do this uh i was reading a newsletter from heather cox richardson who is a historian and she said you know a lot of people are citing you know the 1923 i think is the last time that um that someone lost a a, a speaker mm -hmm. vote but she actually went back to 18 54, 1855, where I think it took something along the lines of 133 votes. Wow. Until they finally like came up with basically a compromise candidate that could that could create sort of a coalition uh where they were able to get votes from both parties. Um and I thought that was a really interesting historical comparison because you know i think you're that also was a time of high polarization you know kind of in many ways i would think parallel to you know the the extreme divisions that were happening in the country etc so anyway i thought that was really interesting um i'm not really sure where it goes uh -huh. I, do they just keep voting is that just what happens until somebody gets a majority is that the idea my, my understanding, I'm not an expert on this, but is that there's no rules right now in the House. And I think there's not even technically House members, I think, is how it is. So, yeah, they have to keep um, they have to keep voting until the majority of the House decides something different. In other words, the majority in the House could could vote to change the rules so a plurality could could elect a speaker. But until that happens, until the majority agrees on something, nothing's going to happen. And so. There's a lot of different ways that this could go. I mean, one way is um, there could be some Democrats who could, in exchange for something for the Democrats, like more committee assignments or more freedom of some, you know, some rights of the minority, you know, we're, we're willing to lend some votes for something, you know, even if it's just changing the rules or, or something along those lines. Um, or there could be a consensus candidate that comes. But I mean, you have to think the Republicans will get their act together to a point. So a, some Republican will be the speaker because, um, you know, that they have the the votes. And so if they could just come together and do that, you know, that would that would make a lot of sense for them. And I think they would be vilified if, let's say, Hakeem Jeffries ended up as the speaker. Um, but who knows? We'll have to see what happens. Yeah. 
I mean, it's also worth kind of looking ahead, given the this extreme faction, and we were just talking about the January 6th committee report on where they're going to go with that. Now, a few weeks ago, you and I talked on the podcast about, you know, the potential for them to bury the report or yeah. the information. And, you know, I think practically speaking, that's not going to be possible now that everything's sort of been released out there. Though there does seem to be some ball in motion because my understanding is that the January 6th committee has also sent its materials to the National Archives mm -hmm. for it to basically be there. And that these House Republicans intend to demand NARA to return those. And so I guess under the theory that they don't want that to be a part of the official archives of the United States, I'm not really sure. And I'm not really sure where that goes. Yeah, I mean, it's one. They only control one House of Congress. I mean, this is part of the 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 this, the problem that they have based on how the November elections went. Right? They control one House of Congress on its own. It really can't do much of anything other than make statements and pass bills that the Senate rejects because um, the Democrats now have a clear majority. They don't even have a power sharing agreement or whatever. They have a clear majority in the Senate. The obviously the the president is a, is a, you know a Democrat, so. They're going to do all these performative statements, um, and uh, essentially the the Democrats are going to react to those. I mean, I actually think from from a Biden presidential perspective, for for the perspective of President Biden, this is actually a great situation for him because he's not going to get blamed for not doing things because the House Republicans are going to be obstruction obstructionists and they're not going to let him accomplish anything, and he's going to be reacting to some of their very extreme partisan proposals. And then, um, you know, ultimately that's going to be the contrast. It's going to be House Republicans versus him. I mean, obviously the you it's possible the the Republicans are going to come up with some new outside outsider, new fresh face candidate for president. But we'll see. I believe yeah. it when I see it. And Biden is tooling around Kentucky today with Mitch McConnell. Which was shocking. Um, By, where's the bipartisanship? bipartisanship? Yeah, it's really interesting. I know it is very interesting. Um, and uh, but I guess uh, Mitch wants credit for going along with the infrastructure bill. So, um, you know, hope wish we could see more of that. Indeed, I mean, I just think that would be better for the country. I will say, I do think Biden has made come kind of made made uh, good on his promise to work together with Republicans to get things passed. He passed quite a few bills in a couple of years. Um, but I, I certainly think that that will change. There's, there's, you know, the House Republicans are much more radical because they are um, from gerrymander districts. You can't gerrymander state lines. And so somebody who gets elected statewide, even if it's in a Republican state, is probably going to be less extreme uh, than somebody who is elected in a very highly gerrymandered Republican seat that they can never lose. Because in that context, and the, the person who's, who wins that gerrymandered seat is basically whoever can get through a primary, which tends to be the, the people who are the more extreme are going to vote. So um, the House tends to, and it's also the House's, uh, of course, uh, there's a seniority issue in terms of who the leadership is. So I just think the House Republicans are... Um, uh, you know, going to be, uh, you know, going to be more extreme and it's, it's going to be hard for him to, to uh, work together with them. We'll see whether that, what happens in the next couple of years. In the meantime, he's going to be confirming a lot of judges. Yeah. And that's a good thing.
without a doubt. So Renato, before we go, <laughs> um, you're you were a little delayed getting back from your trip because you and your wife got COVID. So, <laughs> so tell us about that because um, I think you were on TV a lot during that time, which you mentioned, and you were kind of in these hostage video shots um, on, on like CNN and MSNBC. Uh, you know, stuck in your hotel room. Yeah, I, I so we were supposed to come back on the 29th, uh, but um, my wife started feeling really sick on Christmas Eve. We were in uh, in Europe doing a cruise of the Rhine and going to all these Christmas markets, which is something we really enjoyed. But Christmas Eve, my wife started feeling really sick. I went on the excursion without her, and then Christmas Day, uh, she tested positive for COVID. So I had to get us immediately off of this cruise ship into, at the time, separate hotel rooms. I had not tested positive uh, I tested positive a, a day or two later. So, um, you know, we ended up combining hotel rooms, at, 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 you know, shortly thereafter. But nonetheless, I was stuck in a hotel room and all we were doing is just sleeping and recovering. And it was it was definitely disappointing. We ended up ex- you know, extending our stay through the third just to recover. Uh, Where were you in Amsterdam? So actually, we were stuck in Basel, Switzerland, um, oh. because we started we flew to Amsterdam and the cruise was kind of ending up in Switzerland. We were going to go to Milan after that. And um, un- unfortunately, we never made Aww. it there. Uh, we had to have a switch in plans. Uh, but, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, we were glad to spend the time together. I will say it was disappointing for us to get COVID because after three plus years, I don't know if we thought we were indestructible, but, you know, we were one of those people who were ordinarily super careful. Um, and uh, this is the price we paid for going on a cruise so ship. So this was your first time getting COVID? Yes. Oh. I never, have you gotten it before? I got it in June. And I know what you mean. Like by, you know, actually I got it in late May, early June. I think there was sort of a wave going around here mm-hmm. anyway. Um, but before I got it, I, I agree with you. I mean, I had been very diligent about wearing masks and, you know, um, but I was like, kind of like, well, maybe some people just don't get it. And I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I thought so too. I was like, oh, wow, I got a great immune system or something. But it's really because I was careful, right? I wouldn't yeah. be, you know, going in huge crowds and whatever. And so, yeah, you're on a cruise ship, it's going to happen. Um, and the reason I ended up doing the TV appearances, we were literally stuck in our rooms with nothing to do for days. Um, but I didn't bring a suit with me. I didn't bring any of my usual setup. So um, if you actually saw behind the scenes... Uh, the, we had these like MacGyver, uh, setups where we had like all these like bath towels and COVID test kits and other things propping up my iPad. And then my wife holding like, uh, you know, whatever lighting we had in the room, like up is like, she was like my grip, uh, key grip or whatever, uh, during the, uh, during the appearance. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't pack a ring light. Always take a ring light with you. I know my wife's like, you didn't pack anything. You didn't pack a stand for your iPad or anything. I was like, no, you know, I wanted to take the time off and spend it with her and not be on television or do anything like that. But we had like nothing to do when we were stuck there. I was like, we're just literally sitting here, uh, you know, whatever, watching. Yeah, the 845 page January 6th report to read. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, I'm glad you're back and I'm glad you're back safely and on the mend. And... I'm excited to enter the new year. So am I. I'm excited about that. And I'm excited about 
growing the podcast. Thanks to all of you for helping us launch that in 2022. And I'm excited to see where this podcast goes in the year to come. So happy new year, everybody. Happy new year. Uh, like subscribe if you're on YouTube and please uh, talk up our podcast to your friends. Thank you.